talking with a lot of you in practice discussion over the last few weeks, and there's um, there is heartache, there is confusion, there is depression, there is hopelessness, there are a lot of feelings about the current moment. So I just jotted down off the top of my head things that have been in the news in the last two weeks, just to just to say what's in our bodies. Massive hurricanes, floods, fires, heat waves, loss of tens of thousands of species, the breaking away of the world's largest glaciers, dishonest and dangerous government, foreign interference, potentially in the elections again, an attack on our democracy and institution, over-disenfranchisement of voters, military-occupied city streets, potentially rigged elections, the continued killing of black bodies, the seizing of nationally protected parks and native lands for drilling, refugees caged at borders, a relentless attack on women's rights, on voting rights, aimed at folks of color, especially black people, on LGBTQ rights, aimed largely but not only at the trans community, civil rights, aimed at too many people to name, a spreading, bludgeoning poverty with 40 million officially estimated as impoverished in this country and another 43% of the working population earning under 25,000, and an international pandemic that has locked us all away from one another. And that is just to name a few things. And that isn't to sink us, to be funny, to be glib, to be anything except to name what's in our bodies. But this is the static background to our normal lives at the moment. So getting kids off to school, going to work, making sure people in our family are healthy, taking care of sick loved ones, all of these things that would be difficult under normal circumstances. This is the background to that. And so it is not a surprise, especially being that some of us, whether we're actually alone in our homes, and I'm not saying these are different, but I just want to say whether we are alone in our homes or whether we are with our families, we are still in a set of very constricted circumstances. That is not, these are not what our minds and bodies are accustomed to. And I want to talk a bit about that because I think we have to, um, I feel that we have to live in the reality of where we are. Live in the reality that we do not know the, what's going to happen with the next few months, if not the next few years likely much more than that are going to be. So I wanted to talk about hopelessness because I hear different forms of hopelessness arising from people. And it's not the only feeling that's happening, but it is one of the dominant feelings. I want to talk about three kinds of hopelessness that I have noticed in myself and that I'm hearing in other people. And they are different, and they require different responses. What I would call a kind of pessimistic hopelessness. And pessimistic hopelessness, I would say, is when we we relate to a future by having lots of images and ideas and beliefs about how it's going to go wrong. 
when we say, oh, the future's hopeless. It's this kind of pessimism that we know it's all downhill from here. This is the way in some ways that, that certain, um, that's a lot of people related to the environmental crisis pre-COVID was this it's all just downhill, it's falling apart. COVID has kind of shaken up or the current situation has shaken up um, hopelessness for us in ways that that I think are complicating, surprising, and um, important. Because this pessimistic hopelessness of just having a future that's terrible, in some ways, we can't afford that kind of hopelessness right now. Then there's another kind of hopelessness that I would say is cynical hopelessness. Lauren, I often joke, this is the this is the the attitude of of growing up in a working class, certain working class households, which is nothing's ever worked. It's not going to work. It's always been shit. It's going to be shit. <laughs> Government's never worked for you. What do you expect? Why even try? It's just hopeless. It's a little bit different than pessimistic hopelessness. It's not about a future that's terrible. It's about a past that's always been nonsense and worthless that you're projecting into the future. It's a giving up before we even try. But there's a third hopelessness that I think has become, that has come front and center that has um, maybe pushed a lot of us back off our, back off our heels a little bit. These first two, pessimistic and cynical, they have ideas, they have beliefs. I have a belief about the future, that's what my hopelessness is rooted in. I have a belief about the past and what it means for the future, and that's what my hopelessness is rooted in. But there's another hopelessness that I would call hopelessness without belief. And this is a hopelessness that I think a lot of us are experiencing now, which is the beliefs we had the ideas we had, the thoughts we had, the ways of being we had, the things we counted on in an annual cycle, the ways we behaved, like what happens in the fall, what the fall means, are gone. So that which brought a sense of hope to things, or potentiality to things, beliefs that brought a feeling of potentiality, possibility, it's hard to, in the current situation, hard to believe in them. It's hard to find them in some ways. For reasons that have to do with isolation, solitude, everything that's coming at us. But a lot of folks are finding it hard to believe in what used to fill them with a sense of possibility or a sense of hope. So this kind of hopelessness is not coming from I mean, it can easily get blended with the other two. But it's not coming from a set of beliefs we have. It's coming from a loss of a set of beliefs we had. And so we find ourselves in um, not knowing quite what to do. So for me, as an example, fall always, my whole life, has been a season of possibility. And it's been linked to all of these things, connected to all of these. My whole body just knows that first crisp day of fall is when everything is possible. And yet this year, 
doesn't quite feel that way. I still love it, but doesn't quite feel the same. And so these get mixed up. They can get mixed up where we can't tolerate the hopelessness without belief. And so we go into these cynical or pessimistic hopelessnesses, or we start or addictive behavior kicks in, or distraction, or depression, or any number of responses to not having the future, a kind of brightness associated with the future. And for some of us, we may have not had a brightness associated with the future for a very long time. And so this might be old news, but um, it creates a hard situation. You know, I was thinking about the feeling in the body with this kind of um, sudden dropping into um, not feeling possibility in some ways or being concerned about possibility. We let ourselves feel that. For some of us, that's just too hard to feel when we go somewhere else. Or maybe we're not feeling that at all. But for me, I think when I come into this, I think, I don't know if, if, if any of you, those of you who are old enough to remember, what were they called, ringers, when you put your laundry through? Yeah, so we used to have these two things. There were two circles, like 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 rolling pins, and they had a crank on the side. And you stick your clothes in them, and you crank it through to the other side. And there was a tub, usually. It usually stuck up out of a tub. This is what we did as kids. And by the time you were done, you had this kind of gray water that kind of smelled like soap and kind of looked like dye, and kind of had dirt in it, and it was just this, uh. <laughs> it, was, it didn't smell bad. It wasn't repulsive. It was just, uh. it's like being full of that gray water. And as I'm talking with people, you know, there's all of this going on. There's these challenges to our energy that's happening. And then we don't have the supports we normally have because we're in our apartments or we're not going to work. So it starts to become really clear the degree to which the difficulties of our lives are often energized or, or, or responding to the difficulties of our lives or the struggles of our lives often require the energy of others. That being with others, our daily routine that we take for granted is often the way we gather the strength and energy to meet our lives. Because we're not individual selves. I mean, if there's one thing this practice is aimed at, it's that we're not individual self-energizing beings. That we're gathering energy, we're gathering life from the connections of our lives. And so those are now interrupted or we're feeling them in strange ways through video, but our bodies are not connecting to them. You know, I'm reading this book because I think it's it's telling for the moment. There's this book that, um, I forget the subtitle, but it's called Solitary Confinement. It's about solitary confinement. Because I'm curious what low-grade solitary confinement, which I think a lot of people are experiencing, does to people. And this is very much... Um, 
a book that talks about what it does to people. And one of the things it does is it begins to erode our ability to um, experience ourselves as, as subjects or as humans or as beings in certain ways. It starts to fall away. It's very difficult. It turns out that the way we, we reinforce our feeling of humanity, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise, and our feeling of a subject or a being that has will and agency in the world is by other people. It's our interactions with other people that allow us to have a feeling of um, being and strength and um, agency and subjectivity in the world. So when that's gone, it begins to fall away and it begins to erode and it becomes really difficult. And I think these are things that it's hard to name. We're talking to it, we're pointing to it. People some people often say in practice discussion, people often have a phrase that something's like that is something like, well, you know, and all the stuff that's going on around me is probably affecting me too. You know, in some way. All the stuff. All the stuff is going on around us without the normal supports for being able to act in response to all that stuff. You know, I had this feeling, I had this um, this experience when I was on uh, the one-month treat, retreat alone because I was by myself and I didn't see other people. And there was a point about two weeks in, two and a half weeks in, where it completely came up in my mind. I had no idea if I'm a human being right now. Like, I couldn't find anything to make sense out of that. And it became clear to me that that's because I hadn't been interfacing with human beings. And so I just, that wasn't a part of my consciousness anymore. I was more with, I was more um, related to trees. But that is with a lot of basis of practice and, um, and being in nature and being held in lots of different ways. But one thing I would talk about this um, experience of I'll just go back to what the the Buddha and the Dharma tells us about self is there is not a permanent and separate self. There is only a dependently co-arisen being, a dependently co-arisen self, which means when it comes to people, what we experience as who we are is is intersubjective. In other words, it's arising from our relationships with each other. What I know myself to be is arising from an inter, and to use a word, in, in an interbeing way with everyone around me. And when those people are not there, suddenly something happens where I'm starting to have a much more reduced experience of who I am. And so there isn't some static self there that is holding ground. That's an illusion. Despite whatever situation we're in, that doesn't exist. It's not like Greg is this way with, or is this way with everybody around me, with the song around me. And I'm the same way when I'm by myself for two years. That, there is no constancy there. So when the people change, when the circumstances change, it affects our experience of who and what we are. In a real way, it's not just because we're attached or we're not awake enough. We are actually changing. 
in those situations. And that change is a difficult change. It's a painful one. It's a painful one even to move from one group of people who defined our, who we were to another. So, for example, when we begin practice and, and, our, and the community that reflects us is less and less the people we hung out beforehand with beforehand and more and more the Sangha, even that transition is very difficult because the self is getting, is being pushed around and changed. Some things are fighting, dying. Some things are dying. Some things are being born. These are being changed. Ways of communication change. All of these things happen. And so now suddenly we are alone with either ourselves or with two other people or with a small family and all of these other. I feel this with not, um, not being with my colleagues at work. They reflected an aspect of me that is not being reflected. They, there was a part of who I was that arose with them. And it's not arising right now. And that's a painful thing to be gone. And so how do we look at two very difficult things, which is one, associating possibility with the future is a challenge at the moment. And the other is a very restricted or very transformed sense of who one is. And for some people, maybe that's, in both cases, it's a small move from where one was before. And in other cases, it might be a, an enormous and radical shift from where one was before. But to have time interrupted and being interrupted in the same moment is no small thing. And then have to respond to a world that is nothing short of cataclysmic, where we don't know what if our, even our nation state has structural integrity left in it, is a hard moment. And it would not be, in my opinion, for me anyway, it is not helpful to then toss out some shallow celebrations of hope that just create a kind of dissonance, but rather to be with the being that is. And so in all of that, we're going to be talking about refuge a lot, this practice period, in and all of that. Where is refuge? What is refuge? And don't say sangha. You know, I can hear some of the people I talk to, don't tell me sangha, they're all on screens. I can't take refuge in sangha the way I used to. I mean, we are taking refuge in sangha anyway, but it isn't the way we used to. Our bodies are having a different experience than, than, um, than might be going on with our eyes and our intellectual processes and other things. So I want to talk about sentience. I want to talk about being with life because there is a way of being in one's life that, uh, that addresses this, I think, in my experience anyway. So we often talk about consciousness and we talk about awareness. I want to use another word, which I'm going to use as sentience right now. I'll, I'll talk about why I want to talk about this a little differently. Buddhism consciousness is um, it's very specifically refers to this aspect of mind where I'm over here, I have a sense of, of a viewer, and I have a sense of the viewed. I'm in the world of perception. There is a perceiver and a perceived. There's a subject and an object, and consciousness is this function. It is the experience of having a self in awareness. 
Buddhism, some, especially Western Buddhists, they sometimes use awareness to refer to the experience of, of a non-dual experience of that, meaning that there isn't an experience of self and other, there's just kind of vast awareness. It's associated with spaciousness. And so we have this big sky awareness that, where everything's included. And that's important. It's important to realize and know that we're not the tiny being we think we are. It's kind of behind our eyes or behind our, wherever we experience it being behind looking out onto a big world. But the big world is us, it is me. But there's something else that, there's something that that experience doesn't quite fully account for in the way it's talked about. And that is bodily sentience or the experience of a contacted world, a world in relationship that there's a tingling in the body. There's a feeling of life force. There's fingers touching each other. There's the feeling of legs against one another. There's a feeling of the pressure of my body against the floor. There are, are all of the aspects of fluidity and richness and contact that make up one's sentient life. Sometimes in the way, and I'm not saying it has to be this way, but sometimes in the way awareness is used, it's almost as if we can feel a little bit disembodied, as if it penetrates the body and just makes one big, vast, open space. That gets tricky because we can use it to um, both bypass our experience of being a body in the world, but but even more so, not appreciate, not deeply ground ourselves in our experience of sentience in the world. The experience of one's voice, the experience of one's hands, hand motions, the way the hand feels when it opens and closes, the way it feels to pick something up and put it down with care. To actually let being, to let oneself rest in all of those movements and those motions, to not try to find some huge, there's nothing wrong with this, but not, to not be so focused on the vastness of experience that one misses the contact of experience. One misses being with the world, that one misses that my, what I am is being made up not only by spaciousness, not only by awareness, but by everything that is in contact as me at the moment. Everything that is fluidly moving as who I am. And this is an interesting thing because in a time when we are restricted in terms of the way we experience ourselves with other human beings, and we certainly are, we are restricted in the way we experience ourselves with other human beings, there is an opportunity to open up the way we are intersubjective or the way we experience ourselves with something much broader than human beings. So if I understand who I am, because of the people in my life. What has happened to human life where mostly that's how we understand it? We mostly understand ourselves in relationship with one another. What would it be to let the subjectivity, the sentience, I won't even talk about whether it's subjectivity, but the sentience of a tree be a part of who I am, 
be what's in conversation with me, to let the movement, the making of breakfast in the kitchen, or um, whatever it is that we're doing in our physical life, be that which is in conversation as this self, as this being. The Buddha said, dependently co-arisen, not just with people, with all things. The true self, the self that is not attached to a notion of permanence and 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 and, and uh, isolation and separation. But that self is arising, it's all things. Dogen says it's the myriad things arising, it's everything that makes up the self. So what then would it be to open up? It's not a substitute for our own species, for sure. But there's an opportunity in this restriction to kind of open up to everything else that we have walked through and passed because we are so focused on interhuman life. They're so focused on what humans say and what humans do and what humans decide the truth in and the narratives that humans talk about. And all of that is what makes me. But so does the sky and the trees. So does the sidewalk. So does the toaster. So does everything else. So to really let, to really begin to allow that to be alive and, and to rest in the sentience of this body in relationship to all of those things and maybe even perceive sentience of things that before I didn't listen to, I didn't appreciate. Some, a Sangha member was telling me, several Sangha members actually are telling me that their relationship of trees in the park has just become far more pronounced than before because they are now experiencing that sentient relationship as a part of who they are. It's now a part of the fluid self. It's now part of the dependently co-arising being, not just in, oh, I see you over there, but you are me. To rest in that feeling of sentience that flows and is fluid through all of this contact and let that contact be who I am so that the aloneness that I might feel in relationship to human beings is not the only place where I decide what it is to be alone or not alone, where I decide, the only place I decide what it is to be lonely or not lonely. And again, there is no substitute for being with human beings or a human being. (laughs) But it is very, very old in all of our traditions, if we go back far enough, that we are far, far more than what humans say we are. A friend of mine, a um, person I've, I've been on some retreats with, Felix and Ghost Horse, he used to always say that for the Lakota, the, this, the, the sense of who I am is just this tiny, tiny little thing in the middle of this, basically Mother Earth. Mother Earth is what I am, and then there's this tiny little thing I might call the self that is in there too, but it's relatively insignificant. What would it be to uh, let the body's contact and sentience bring us in relationship again with that? And the um, one of the wonderful side effects of that is that possibility emerges from that sentience. Potentiality is in life. Possibility is in life itself. It's in sentience and contact in such a way that we no longer have to worry about whether it's projected into a possible future. But when we're resting in this sentience and when we're in this kind of connection and when we're letting life be the determiner of what I am, 
I'm both no longer alone and fully experiencing possibility. Because in that engagement, there is the connection to all things and the potentiality of all of life that is always present no matter what silliness our particular species happens to be involved in, no matter what cruelty it happens to be involved in. There is no um, canceling that out in that direct experience. So to rest in ourselves as sentience, not a sentience that is my sentience, but a sentience that is the sentience of all of living existence. It is a shared sentience. It is how I can know the sentience of a forest when I walk into it. I don't know that to my intellectual mind or my thinking mind. I know it because the sentience that is the base of this mind is something that knows the sentience of other things of other beings. And so when I walk into a forest, it does not feel the same as walking into the middle of a parking lot. There's immense, vast sentience in the forest, and this one knows it. And so to, and this sentience, Laura evidences this all the time, this sentience can be felt deeply by a single potted plant need not be a whole forest. A bird that lands on the windowsill, just allowing ourselves to rest in sentient relationship with life. And this moves and flows based on, it's not locked into vastness. It's not locked into narrowness. That basic mind moves and relates in whatever way it needs to in a given moment. Sometimes there will be joy, sometimes there will be despair, sometimes there will be pain, sometimes there will be ease. And sentience, being with the sentient body, allows for all of that. And so I just want to say, I want to read something about um, the way Dogen talks about this. Talks about sentience and this being and what it is to be at base in this kind of life and relationship. Many of you know from the Genjo Koan. A fish swims in the ocean. No matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, no matter how far it flies, there is no end to the air. However, the fish and the bird have never left their elements. This is what it is to be in the sentience, the deep sentience of the felt mind, is that we never leave our elements. The fish and the bird have never left their elements. When their activity is large, their field is large. And when their need is small, their field is small. Thus, each of them totally covers its full range, and each of them totally experiences its realm. If the bird leaves the air, it will die at once. If the fish leaves the water, it will die at once. Know that water is life, and air is life. The bird is life, and the fish is life. Life must be the bird, and life must be the fish. 
It is possible to illustrate this with more analogies. Practice, enlightenment, and people are all like this. That we're not, um, we do not need to be locked into our solitude. We do not need to be locked into a hopelessness in such a way where possibility is now gone and connection is now gone. We can bring ourselves down to the very base of life itself and in this moment and know that in that, in that experience, in that quiet experience of moving through, and sometimes not quiet, of moving through life in an attentive way where we are moving at the speed of being cognizant, being aware of our sentience in relationship to all things, a cup being set down. In that is complete possibility and potential. And that is um, the timeless. And that is the connection to everything. And so to be with that, because the Buddha tells us, we talked about this last night in class, the Buddha tells us that we, we actually have to go through, if we're going to leave the spinning mind of thought, we have to settle fully into the body. And it is from that settling into the body of relationship that the deeper wisdom arises that allows us to respond to the moment. It is not simply thinking harder about things that are wrong. It's about falling into a connected body and sentient relationship with the world so that what, what arises from that connection is a deeper embodied wisdom that breaks the grip of our habits, puts fresh water into the system, sunlight through the door, and allows us to respond in a way that we did not conceive of prior. So I would encourage all of you to um, to attend to all to to find that sense of sense-based sentient relationship and contact with oneself in the world and not move quickly past it. Stay in relationship with it, with everything that you do, whatever you're picking up and putting down when you're in kinhead. This is always what we're asking of ourselves in Zen. When our feet are touching the floor, it's easy to tell when somebody is in their mind in walking meditation or not because of the way their feet are contacting the floor. Whether they're just on autopilot or whether those feet are aware of themselves and the way they're touching and releasing and touching and releasing as they move through. And so to, to attend to that in all of our movements and to stay in contact, stay in contact, stay in contact, stay in contact. Suzuki Roshi says if we stay in contact all the time, there is not enough room for the karmic mind to kick in. There's no space for it. So it's not that we're taking this contact, this sentience, this relationship is the pathway to liberation. It also happens to be, in my experience, a relatively effective pathway to our current, to alleviating some of the suffering of our current moment. 
So maybe for the rest of the day, we can attend to this activity and see if, when the last time we talked about shin, see if heart can stay in contact if, and everything else about bodily being stay in contact with the world as we move with it, as we move, we are moving as it. And see if that allows for some ground in a time that may be difficult for a while. And the refuge of life, raw, simple, basic, present life, may be the most powerful refuge we have at this time. So I'll stop there. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.